0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Heritage Voices, Episode 75. I'm Jessica Uquinto and I'm your host. And today we are talking about the ramblings of a Lakota anthropologist on American Indians and anthropology and tribal relations. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the NUCH, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dinéta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. And today we have Dr. Richard Myers on the show. Richie is the Tribal Relations Specialist at the Black Hills National Forest and the former Director of Graduate Studies and Associate Professor at Oglala Lakota College. He holds a PhD degree in Anthropology from Arizona State University. At South Dakota State University, he served as Director of Tribal Outreach to the President. Myers has also served as a writer for the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs under both the Bush and Obama administrations and was a fellow in the Anthropology Department at the Smithsonian. He's the president elect of the Association of Indigenous Anthropologists and he was also on a recent episode, episode 73 of Heritage Voices exploring the ethics in experimental archaeology and he was so great and we didn't get enough time with him during that episode so I am really excited to have you back on and and learn more about all of the cultural anthropology work that you've done or your background because obviously that's my neck of the woods and I don't get to talk about it enough so very excited welcome back to the show Richie thank you All right, okay, so let's dive in, and can you tell us a little bit about what got you into this type of work?
2: Jeez, it's kind of, um, I guess, coincides with my my life in general. My dad's family uh, are, I guess, from Ireland, who came to Chicago, and uh, in strict kind of rules, his dad's side with the name Myers are German names that went to Ireland at some point. And the maternal side are, uh, more, I guess Irish known names and towards County Mayo and County Cork are where his relatives hail from, but his grandparents were butchers in Hyde park in Chicago and whatnot. And, um, long story short, he, uh, and his Siblings all moved after World War II to the East Coast near Boston, Massachusetts, and they had all, I guess, achieved higher education by way of sports and sports scholarships. And his led him into football. And uh, after finishing his football eligibility, he took off to the Rosebud Reservation. And in the '70s, there that was an interesting time for. American Indian movement, and other such things going on nationally. My mom hails from uh, the Heisel community on the Pine Ridge Reservation here where I'm speaking to you from, and the town of Wambly. The long and the short of it is my mom and dad, uh, <laughs> I guess, got together, and I was their offspring. I, I guess I got a lot of anthro gobbledygook in my mouth if I start babbling. But out of that that kind of union, I, uh, as I progressed in life and school and so on and so forth, I came into anthropology with a hungry thirst for finding more and more words within the discipline that explained things that I'd grown up watching and seeing between my mom's Lakuta first language speaking family and my dad's I guess you could say Irish Catholic, New England type upbringing. <laughs> so, I ended up spending significant time in all different types of cultural pockets—from immigrants to the reservation to my father's second marriage to a Indigenous woman from the mountains of Michoacan, Mexico—and uh, my mom is back to the Denver region. So I have I have in total. Uh, I guess you could say seven sisters that popped up in that reality from cousins being adopted to half sisters and the technicalities of all that. But it's just easier to say I had seven sisters, with my oldest sister being highly influential on me. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I, I got to attend a fancy school in New England called Amherst College, which at the time was the Lord Jeff's and the whole attribution of Lord Jeffrey Amherst to being the first kind of smallpox blanket guy to, you know, inflict biological warfare on native people. <laughs> so yeah, from from all of those different experiences, uh, I, I went to grad school in Arizona and Vermont at the same time <laughs> for different programs. And everything just kind of, made sense to pursue anthropology um, for the reasons of culture and language. And, yeah, I, I ended up focusing on Native identity and its articulations in English when people are trying to, uh, you know, articulate what it means to be an American Indian at a pan-Indian level versus a tribal level, urban versus reservation, all different distinctions I examined that in a discourse of uh, anthropology as it relates to American Indians and the notion that anthropology is built off of the back of American Indians in this hemisphere, as opposed to social anthropology in Britain. But both coming from that kind of philosophical understanding of the other and self and other as interesting beginnings to a discipline. And what does that mean for Pre-industrialized societies and cultures and communities that are now, you know, completely encapsulated by modern uh, global capitalism. So, so yeah, anthropology just made sense.
1: I I'm still stuck on the fact that you got two graduate degrees at the same time. <laughs> one was hard enough.
2: Oh yeah, the the one was in English at Middlebury College, and the other. Was in anthropology at Arizona State University, and the idea of wedding the two together in terms of sociolinguistics, uh, and so on and so forth, which later led to becoming a ghostwriter and other things. Where I used to tease and say I'm a textual ventriloquist, but <laughs> yeah, there's, there's different different things. the The program at Middlebury was allowing me to do. The degrees in the summer. So I do the two semesters of the fall and spring and then attend the other program in the summer and uh, chipped away at them both at the same time. Okay. dug up a good, good amount of debt. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah. So after grad school,
2: what, what did you want to do with all of that? I, guess. I believe uh, I was... Thinking on a career in academia, but not quite sure, my, my life kind of bouncing between different types of institutions, there was that idea of, okay, if I teach at an elite liberal arts college, I can revel in all sorts of fancy cutting edge theory and ideas. But the tokenism of being the only Native person in programs or on faculty was a bit I guess, difficult to handle at that age. And actually, I think at any age, but um, (laughs) I Mm -hmm. entered into the federal government at the time that I was somewhat searching for academic positions and just somewhat exhausted from finishing and completing the dissertation and where my dissertation was examining a lot of native PhDs and what that means to claim that identity in academe. I thought, geez, I had a lot of indicting interviews with people who weren't Native and who had postured as such, and kind of a lot of notions of what is today called ethnic fraud and pretend Indianism. I didn't want to be noted as the guy to police identity. I thought it was fascinating the way that people frame out things and try to authenticate in that ultimately human beings aggregate around language communities so if you're all into saving the whales or into hiking and eating you know gluten free or what, whatever the the kind of identifiers are for coming together and trying to be an identity not the mainstream but how marginalized and what does that mean and almost a competition for who's the most minoritized or marginalized and how does that work and when that gets applied to indian country you know there's there's what people sometimes call ground zero and when they spout out statistics about indigenous native north america or native people in north america above the border region where there's federal recognition the idea that the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation or perhaps the San Carlos Indian Reservation share some of the most dismal statistics with poverty. You'll find people in Indian country at large often will say say things like, you know, the average lifespan of a native man on the Pine Ridge Reservation is in his 50s. And, you know, according to that, I've, I don't have much longer to live, but Hopefully I paid attention to (laughs) some things and maybe I'll make it longer. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting things when people want to, you know, especially during November is Native American Heritage Month. And that month in particular becomes an interesting time. Like, I believe February, what is it? We're in Black History Month. And whether you get appropriated by Sprite commercials or Target or whoever. Yeah, the that is something that I guess it's not as prevalent in Indian country to the point that it has hit other minoritized things. And that's that distinction between uh, native people versus minorities. But there's for sure just a lot of things to, to, I guess, dive into when you're dealing with quote unquote Indian country proper and then urban Indian identity. And what does it all mean at the end of the day? And, uh, yeah, when I, when I went from uh, the Smithsonian one day for lunch, I ended up not knowing that I was in an interview for a government position at the Department of Interior as a writer and an <laughs> editor. And so that came upon my lap and I, I, uh, <laughs> I dove into that spot and I uh, figured I owed so much for school that I might as well just consider myself property of the federal government yeah, I was going to stay there for a few years and go back to academic work. And uh, ultimately I did that, but it was something where the time period uh, started to scare me. What was three years turned into five. And then I wasn't sure if I would be stuck in DC for my life. And that was not the place I'd ever envisioned on being. (laughs) And uh, what did they say? DC is, the Hollywood for ugly people. And so, yeah, I, I wasn't Hollywood material and I never had aspirations of being there, but I um, always wanted to come back and I promised my grandparents out here and so forth that I would come back to Wombly and do what I could with whatever education I got. And so Eventually, I, I had an opportunity to leave the government and go to the east side of South Dakota, to South Dakota State University, to build an American Indian Studies program and to work as the, I guess, the, the liaison to the president at the time. They were trying to do some things because I believe they got dinged real bad on the diversity and other components that showed how racist the school was. When I got there, there was a bunch of farmer kids driving around with their rifles because everybody in South Dakota has probably a gun in their car, it's safe to say, and not an, not necessarily an automatic assault rifle, but when you live in rural reality, uh, it's just normal. But to point those guns at the kids from the city or minority kids walking or Indian kids, those things definitely don't do good for an environment like SDSU. So They really revamped and have made a 180 degree turn, you know, and in terms of image, I don't know necessarily as far as gathering and gaining a whole bunch of Native students to go there, uh, both USD and SDSU. Uh, Remind me of ASU and U of A down in Arizona. There's those rivalries and so forth, but Mm -hmm. when you're a Native person, I don't, know that those are necessarily too much on your radar because the biggest achievement is getting through high school. And uh, yeah, those things are interesting. I get the ability as the alumni to Arizona State to see that they've hired a lot of the people I was in school with to really build under President Michael Crow. And they've moved in a huge direction trying to woo a lot of Native people to their programs, but I know University of Arizona has the same. And when you take that same model and you apply it to South Dakota, there's so many similarities where you have a super conservative state surrounding Native populations, which usually don't fall in the category of super conservative. And so there's some interesting parallels to where I went to grad school in the Southwest and I guess the irony is I was trained on YAKIS and uh, I worked a lot with the Kokopa tribe and I finished my work in the Southwest only to come back to South Dakota. And the assumption is I'm a Plains Indian specialist <laughs> and mm-hmm. I wasn't trained in that area, but I jumped into it without having to worry much because I guess just growing up and so forth with uh, my family and, angles from that privilege of not having to, I guess, uh, you know, I didn't have to study things to know things that I had already known, or as I said to one of my advisors in ASU, what took you 30 years to figure out as a brilliant discovery is something that a kid whose grandparents are, are speaking their language while they're watching, you know, and playing Nintendo. (laughs) It's something that's just common day-to-day life so being in a hybrid position like that it's different Um, and then that kind of falls towards the whole notion of native anthropology and what does that mean and you know to be a native skateboarder studying skateboarders because you are a skateboarder versus you're a native person whatever that might mean studying a topic originally in the discipline it was frowned upon and that was right around the late 90s that that turn in methodology started to happen so that that idea of autoethnography and self-reflexivity were really taking hold it's it's interesting to watch that stuff and i guess situate myself within it so i uh was able to bring a major in American Indian studies to what had previously been a simply a minor in American Indian studies at South Dakota State University I spent from 2008 to 2012 the end of it in DC walked away to South Dakota State University in 2012 did what I guess I could in in the border regions of South Dakota which ultimately are kind of underneath the jurisdiction of Christy Nome and the governor and a very conservative slant. So doing what you can in terms of trying to, I don't know if I'd say enlighten, but I, I used to tease in some of my classes with predominantly non-native students and say, I just want you to be nice to Indians whenever you come into contact with them. <laughs> and it was somewhat of a joke, but sort of a sad truth what does that startup, mean yeah. you know what what are the perceptions yeah i mean some of my colleagues from one from the economics department while i was at sdsu said rich he brought me out to the little micro brewery and on his second pint said so i gotta ask you what what's your opinion on the indian problem <laughs> and i was just like uh so what, <laughs> what are what what do you want me to say Yeah. And he said, you know, the Indian problem, what's your perspective on it? And I guess it depends on what you mean by that. I said, and who's, who's it that you're asking? I said, if you ask my family who are native, it's not the Indian problem. It's the white people problem. They all came and never left. And that's the problem. (laughs) And he wasn't sure what to do, but that idea of how do you, how do you frame out, you know, What is celebrated as pioneer success and rugged individualism in a space of reclaiming, you know, lands and sovereignty and the Supreme Court case of the Black Hills indicating that, you know, the lands were taken illegally. You're still on technically native lands that were defined in a treaty. So those are uh, the current realities of always dealing with different things. But. In the South Dakota context, uh, leaving the East side of the state, there's a big divide in South Dakota. It's not horrible, but it's real and tangible. It's called East river versus West river. I met my wife. She's system Wapton up there in the Dakota reservation. And my kids, we came back here and we left uh, the town of Brookings on the East side of the state. And I decided to, uh, come back to the tribal college at that point. And like I said, I'd always told my grandma I would be back, but I wasn't sure when that would be. <laughs> and uh, we came back to the Western side of the Pine Ridge reservation. And uh, we moved into the current, tri- well, vice president of the tribe's house. She was away and we kind of rented from her in the town of Porcupine and I worked for the college and so did my wife for a a year or so. She subsequently went into working for the tribal schools and works at the crazy horse school where I sit on the board currently. And I was, you know, trying to just keep my head low and teach but started to acquire a different type of tokenism on the reservation, which is I had a PhD and I was native versus in the mainstream institution. I had a, PhD and I was native, but it was inverted. So I was the token physically in those other places and spaces. Whereas at the tribal college, I was in terms of credentials, the one with uh, the token reality of having a PhD, but at the same time being a native person with ties to the community. So those things made it an inverted tokenism. So that's always an interesting one to deal with. But yeah, so in 2017, I moved back to the reservation and at the tribal college, um, moving from the sociology and anthropology and all sorts of -of jack-of-all-trades, geography, philosophy, psychology, and the humanities department, I ended up having to teach graduate classes and ultimately moving into the graduate program and department and heading that up for a few years uh, before I made the decision to go back to federal service and uh, work predominantly with tribes directly on different initiatives. So that's the long and the short of it as far as different things. But I guess being a community member to my town and having a job, I guess that's always, if I was to grab large data sets to indicate again what I sort of alluded to earlier, if you're to think about the United States of America and 10% unemployment is probably considered super high and people start freaking out, is is sort of what I kind of gather. But when you're in a community where, you know, between 80 to 90% are constantly unemployed and, and the rough 10 to 15% who are employed are the inverse of mainstream America. So the reality of joblessness and economic deprivation is, uh, you know, I I think that's hard for someone in America to to fathom (laughs) or off of a reservation to understand. What's also a big challenge, I think, is the concept of immigrants. Immigrants left their homelands for economic reasons, oftentimes, or, you know, other obviously serious or life threatening moments. But at the same time, that's what dis- you know, is distinguishing uh, between indigenous people and immigrants is immigrants leave and the people who, you know, ended up on these spaces. This isn't somewhere you would leave. It's your home. So why would you leave? That's always something that shocks people, I think. And it's interesting to see that both at a detached institutional level or on the ground. <laughs> so some of those things play out in all sorts of ways. And I guess my anthropology is somewhat of a applied anthropology at all moments. And so that, that initial question of how did I end up in anthropology, it just makes sense that in English, that's what I'd call it. and as far as being a Lakota person when you're dealing with the world every day is somewhat of an anthropological journey if you're engaged with people in the English language it's going to be anthropology 101
1: yeah yeah absolutely okay so I'm gonna stop you right there because we're at our our first break point but we will just jump right back in when we get back
0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode.
1: Okay, we are back. I have I have all the questions going through my brain right now. But I guess let's, let's talk a little bit more about what you do in your current job right now with the Forest
2: Service. Sure. In my current job, I began uh, September 1st and I teased and. In- still saying it that I'm going to remain the new guy for the next 5 years because the most you know i guess abundant reality that's confirmed on the daily for me is I never worked in USDA never mind the forest service and being that there's many people who have you know they're going on long-term careers and they started by fighting fires and climbing the ranks within the organization I'm completely coming as an outsider, but I'm coming into a position, and all these positions are with this new administration under Biden that were chopped under the previous administration. So the ebbs and flows of funding and non-funding for tribal relations are an interesting thing. I saw the job advertisement, and... The appeal was there simply because it seemed like, again, a way to bridge anthropological connectivity to work with the tribes, the expectations of the trust obligations and the treaty and the relationship of the federal government to the tribes affiliated with the federal lands of the forest. The description of the job to me was everything that I've always done. (laughs) And so I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, I could have an actual full-time job completely devoted to that. And maybe I'll have time on the side to do my own anthropological projects and writings, which ironically at the tribal college, I was teaching six to seven classes on top of running the department on top of running grants and on top of running the IRB and being a gatekeeper to all the research. So there was a lot of just too many hats to wear and and to try to I guess, do that job effectively and try to get to my own academic interests, it was, I think it was en route to a heart attack. So <laughs> I, I made yeah. that decision to shift for a quality of life and um, I'm still, you know, highly involved in the community and education on our reservation from different boards and educational meetings and whatnot. But Yeah, the the shift to the forest has been interesting because I had previously worked at the Department of Interior, and within that, Indian Affairs at the Department of Interior is a fascinating history. Obviously, the notion of the Department of Defense and the BIA were the same entity until they built the Pentagon, but the idea of the BIA comes out in 1824, and The way that the United States expanded was obviously taking lands from native tribes across the country. And in whatever capacity that entailed, you have the Department of Interior evolving in the U.S. federal government in 1849 and the Department of Everything Else, as it was called. And uh, you have the flora, the fauna, fish and wildlife, uh, Bureau of Land Management, national parks, and there you got the Indians, which... No one was really sure, you know, or wanted to say it's kind of awkward. You keep the flora and fauna and native people in that category. Oh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that one was one of the, the job things back when I took that job was to try to clean up the appearance of BIA and that I had a higher education. I wasn't just Indian preference hired. I was brought in on an honors program that dissolved due to the politics of it, it was started under Bush and, The Obama administration had, you know, far more uh, appealing reactions and respect towards Native people, but that particular program that brought me in was dissolved because it had started under Bush. So I don't believe there's an honors program for BIA or for Indian Affairs. And so there's a reputation that is there and people, again, I, I don't work for them, so I don't really feel bad for kind of exposing it, but a lot of people in BIA don't have formal educations and there was a lot of people and it was exposed while I was working there who were pulling in hefty salaries with maybe an associate's degree at a GS 14 level. And it was like, wow, what do you do? (laughs) And so there was a lot of interesting relationships there that I observed while at the department of interior. So now being in the forestry it's underneath usda but congressionally forestry and so forth is uh i think congressionally appropriated from the same department of interior funds so they're close and then to the tribes often because forestry wears green and so does the park service sometimes the tribes aren't too sure what's the difference the federal government's all the same (laughs) and so Mm -hmm. you know as as you're your whole podcast, I'm sure, is is somewhat centered on the idea of the world of heritage and heritage programs and tribal relations falls under heritage programs and it used to fall on heritage program directors and then when you hire a tribal relations specialist, what is their role and it, it's it's just a really fascinating interface and so with the anthropology background and yeah, different experience, there's this interesting space that I, I guess I would say, I, I don't mind it. I knew what I was getting into, but I live in the town of Wombly on the Pine Ridge Reservation and I work in the town of Custer of all places. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit of a hike to get to Custer and yet I can telework. And so, you know, that makes it a little bit better. The distance at least it's about two and a half to three hours drive I stay in Custer's part of the week and then I'm afforded the option and ability to telework on a few days so I can be back in my community and keep my my connections and connectivity here. But yeah, working in a non-native town that's not only non-native but named after George Armstrong yeah. Custer is, I find it funny. <laughs> and so it's, it's a little bit amusing maybe too much to me but um yeah that's that's my current reality as a tribal relations person is trying to do my best to facilitate the involvement of both sides of stakeholders on the tribal side to the federal government side and the policies currently under the Biden administration are moving towards co-stewardship and that's admirable and and what that means ultimately is it's a first step in perhaps giving back lands that could go back to the tribes and control of the tribes if they get the infrastructure to do it there's that opportunity so it's an interesting time to be in the government for sure it could sadly the pendulum could switch and whoever mm-hmm. gets in if they redo or undo the understanding of the Trust relationship to tribes they could dissolve a lot of things and again the pendulum could go the other way so that's uh i guess the nature of working in the federal government with tribes in that regard and in that regard i guess
1: yeah all right um we are at our second break point but hold on we'll be right back here in a second
0: Hey, Archaeology Podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code HEVO at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes.
1: Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? and okay first question i want to ask you so talking about tribal relations i feel like when i when i talk to people that are in tribal relations type positions one of the things that seems to come up is you know like basically like a lot of people that are in those roles get into those roles because they want to you know, support the communities that they're working with, that in, in this case, the tribes um, that they're, they're working with. And it's kind of tricky once they're in that role because they, they kind of realize that their job is not really, I mean, to some extent it is to represent the tribes to the agency, but in, in larger part, their job is is to represent the agency to the tribe. Is that a challenge that you've faced, um, or I don't know, that played out differently in your
2: current role? For sure, that's. Uh, I have some colleagues who are non-native, and that their articulations of being a travel relations specialist are, I guess, I would say, vastly different than mine. One of them felt comfortable enough in front of me to say, "I know you're not gonna jump all over me for this, but I feel that." because of Deb Holland, that there's reverse racism towards us non-native tribal relations people. (laughs) And and I, I, I just said, Oh, okay. I thought it was funny just in terms of the whole argument when people say reverse racism and what does that entail and the structure of reality and so on and so forth. But that colleague is, is an interesting fella and uh, just sometimes he'd probably be better in a laboratory than, dealing with people. And yeah, it's just unique situations that I think people encounter for sure. I guess uh, when I worked at the Department of Interior back in those days, one of my relatives who was deciding on whatever particular reason to try to give me crap for being a BIA Indian tried to say that I'm a sellout by working for the feds. And uh, I think to that, I said, well, cool, hit up your aim daddy and leave me alone then. And uh, and she took back what she said pretty fast because I helped subsidize things for her. But um, having a job is something that, again, what does that mean in modern society? The distinction between you work for corporate America or you're a civil servant. You work for a nonprofit versus you work for a profit. There are different discourses that, you know, circulate. And I think at the position I'm in, I did get asked by some of the uh, folks at work, do I receive any flack for working for the forest unit? Because oftentimes when they're in their meetings and it's obviously all non native people on one side of the table, so to speak, and then the native folks, often the tippos or the tribal leaders, they receive the full, I guess, binary treatment of the you are the other and you are the other, depending on which side you're sitting on. So the idea of me taking the position was to bridge that. And from what I gathered, people who work on different tribal advocacy forums were saying, you know, we're so happy you're in this. But that doesn't mean there aren't people who are going, ah, just another Indian scout working for the feds. That's probably always ongoing depending on how you rub people, and some people rub people wrong. That sounds rough to use the rub metaphor, but uh, the, (laughs) the long and the short of some of that is there are other arguments in the communities of grassroots Indians aren't IRA government Indians. So when someone says they work for the tribe, the money comes from BIA anyways it's appropriated from Congress so you're already a sellout when you work for the IRA governments so there's in all of the tribes that have the I don't know if I would say privilege but still have connectivity to pre-colonial governments in a traditional like the Haudenosaunee versus the the formal tribal recognition of St. Regis Mohawk or Oneida Nation, there's still a a traditional Haudenosaunee council out here. There's still a treaty council who are the grassroots people. And if you work for the tribe, you're already considered a sellout because you're really a Fed because all that money is federal dollars anyways. So there's numerous, I guess, moments where people can, undermine someone for whatever their reason might be you know like activists versus somebody versus tangible issues you're dealing with but personally I haven't dealt with any of those I think due to living still in in my community here and doing the best I can to get along with everybody I don't at least to my face haven't encountered anybody giving me crap (laughs) But again, I'm so new that I'm going to use that for the next couple of decades.
1: So if if somebody was, you know, coming out of of college or whatever, and they were thinking that they wanted to go into this kind of position, what advice would you give them on how to how to do the best they can in in tribal relations kind of
2: role? I think here's a like circuitous way to approach the topic. I spoke to a colleague, he's sort of well-known, named Nick Estes. And we were discussing, you know, and I guess it's a private conversation, but what I'm revealing isn't top secret or private discourse in any way. But he said he's working in an Indian studies department. And this is the first time he's experienced the job and his identity are enmeshed together. Whereas before he was in an American studies department and it just so happened that he was native. The job being about what you are essentially identified as creates a blurring or a hazing of the lines of your professional identity. Are you a professional Indian? Are you a professional person who happens to be Indian? (laughs) And Indian, obviously native, whatever. I don't, I'm not, yeah, the Native American thing is an interesting one. The long and the short of some of that is if being the job versus doing a job, and then is it a career or a job? And, you know, is working as a, a till person for Seven Eleven a career choice or is it a job? Is, you know, what you do in who you are, something that do somewhat combine together. That's a whole fascinating anthropological discussion. If you live in a community where there aren't any jobs, it's who's your family. (laughs) So your identity predates your profession and your career. But if you're a native kid or a non-native kid, ultimately I, I would think that it comes down to your identity as a human being and where you're at in your identity, meaning, are you fine with being transparent to the identity you're in? Or are you trying mm-hmm. to pose as something that you're You are kind of overcompensating for something? And if you're sort of wishy-washy or you're trying to be something, you might get eaten up in positions that are requiring just something stable. So if you're like my one friend there, he's not trying to be native he's interesting because he perhaps is trying to be more chicano which is more of a stretch and he battles with other people in his category as you're not chicano enough you're a white guy and i found that fascinating and i i don't really point that out to him but he's in a different category altogether so if you're working with a different tribe that's something to consider as well you know, I did spend grad school down with the Southwestern tribes and I could generically just be ethnic and not worry and people didn't know if I was Navajo or one of those tribes or whatever because there was a different reality down there. And yet, um, observing things and watching things and if someone's coming out of college... Uh, It's helpful to have, quote-unquote, the gift of gab, (laughs) I think. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, it's helpful to be respectful and listen. And, you know, you operate accordingly. And if you're assured as to who you are and you're not, not, you know, quite sure what you do and why you do it, to the fullest, no one I don't think really is fully enmeshed in an academic discourse on who they are fully, but, but yeah, in certain positions in life where people want things and communication done, if someone is trying to play both sides, but trying to play one, it becomes apparent. And I've seen that in all the meetings I'm in. There are some who, you know, do you operate in a tribal community at what level? are your family still living in that community? It'd be like an Irish Catholic person from South Boston saying, I'm Irish. And then my grandpa was in the IRA and he blew up that post office in that movie, Michael Collins, blah, blah, blah. And we smuggled guns with Whitey Bulger and so on and so forth. And then you meet someone in Iowa who says, I'm Irish. And then say, well, when did your family come over? Do you keep contact? What village, what community? The Germans have bought out most of the land. You know, there's all sorts of things of, if you're claiming heritage, that's a different identity construct, then you're still tethered to that space in the politics of the everyday drama. And so on a continuum scale, someone coming and and being like that silly movie, and I I only say silly because... There's Hollywood silly, but that Thunderheart with Val Kilmer back in the day, and there's this white looking fella saying he's Indian and he comes back and no one knows who he is, but the elders know who his lineage is and what is that all about. He has a vision and he's never even been to the reservation before. Meanwhile, someone who's been there their whole life didn't have a vision. So somehow there's this spiritual value to Val Kilmer that Graham Green's character didn't have, and obviously I'm jumping into a cinema reference, so if no one's seen that movie, (laughs) what I'm saying doesn't make too much sense. But ultimately, when people come out of college, was it a tribal college? Because then people know you and you didn't leave the tribal community. If you went to a mainstream or state school, does your community know you? And then what if you weren't raised there? Like jumping to the Southwest context, what if you grew up in Flagstaff or Phoenix, you know, does that make you less of a native from where or just own your identity from where you are? And you could be related to people, but do you live there now? And so that overstepping and speaking for the collective because you're something is a dangerous spot that I've watched people do. And I, I don't think I, I don't overstep at this point in life. I may have when I was younger, who knows, <laughs> but, but I do think those are things that I've watched when I watch discourse in a room between natives and non-natives and someone tries to speak for native people. And it's like all 574 tribes or all the, all the <laughs> Lakota bands or all of the Canadian, who are you? Your whole tribe listens to you. I mean, that, that kind of, Mistake, I think, happens a lot in terms of being uh, intermediary um, in different situations. Even watching attorneys represent clients, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I don't know if that somewhat speaks to it a little bit, but, but I do think you know their great experience can be gathered pretty fast on the ground, whether you want it or not. You are gonna dive into the deep end. <laughs> if you're a travel relations person
1: yeah yeah is there anything that you're working on right now that you're like i'm really excited about this
2: i am i guess in a larger sense and obviously more acute ways with particular spaces and projects but in a general sense a lot of the projects i'm trying to facilitate involve getting the tribes on board Uh, the existing programs and and what it means to have a forest space of land and the upkeep and the the kind of, I don't know how to feel what, and when I say, I don't know how to feel, I mean, the the usage of the term preservation and conservation, preservation makes me think of formaldehyde and you're preserving something like Ishii's brain in a in a paperweight or something but the idea of continuous stewardship is the word that they're using but basically whether it's the rainforest or any of the forests it's not like it's a untouched thing that nobody ever came about everything has often been you know interfaced and intermingled with human beings and if human beings can learn to try to balance their engagement and try to keep things in the ecological niche going as opposed to screwing it up. That's really important. And so when people say natives and the environment and all of that at just purely a level of a generalized statement, it's also how do you know that there was more trees in the Black Hills now than there ever were when Custer was first going through? There's some really cool pictures and the different types of trees. It's almost like a tree farm. It reminds me of a chia pet, honestly. But uh, in order to have that reality in that space, it requires upkeep and there's the terms I've been learning about forest treatments and so what happens every summer with burns and natural disasters and to try to prevent huge ones versus controlled burns and how traditional understandings of native tribes from the you know, from the Pacific Northwest all the way through to the East Coast tribes understood you have to burn things to recycle at times and doesn't mean destroy, it means to Again, uh, I guess steward, steward the land. Steward the land is different than complete total control and kind of, I don't know, people like to use colonized, but I think of some kind of song lyric where it says they paved paradise to put up a parking lot. Okay. <laughs> and in that regard, if you're wanting you know, to have lands that are still existing in a natural state for animals that you don't want dead and things to keep going from plants to animals you gotta think about sustainability and as opposed to concrete and urbanization so those are really interesting concepts but the projects i'm working on are about trying to give tribes a seat at the table to access inform you know if they don't want to do something they have the the ability if they have a seat at the table to say hey We don't agree with this. I mean, there's all sorts of mechanisms within the system from NEPA to just environmental impact statements to treaty rights to all sorts of ways that tribes can get more involved at this juncture. So there's plenty of projects that can lead to employment. And so for me, if I can facilitate some projects that get some work crews to be able to work in the summer, and maybe perhaps throughout the year, that's bringing income to families who, again, with uh, 80 to 90% unemployment, for sure could use some help. So those are some of the things. But also, we are working on a cultural interpretive center. And if the tribes start to You know, in a phased in project, start to get a sustainable way to then reclaim the narrative of the Black Hills as to what, what do Native people think? Why are these sacred? What's going on? And then how was this, you know, relationship not right? And why did the Supreme Court acknowledge that? And where are we at now? And how are we moving forward? And again, you have to be honest with history as opposed to cover it up. So, there's there's those kind of larger issues that are in the works right now, and for sure under the Biden administration, those are goals of co stewardship. I think what's the one bears ears or something in yeah, the southwest right next to me exemplified as yeah yeah. So so you're well aware of the kind of I think it had a tumultuous time under Trump, and it's back to positive role again and so so yeah it's it's an opportune time to try to really get the tribes um, at the table so to speak but you have two-year rollovers in leadership and consistency and in infrastructure challenges so yeah th- those are all things that i guess it, it it's ethically a fun feeling if i was to put it that way knowing that if I can try to help reinforce and support tribal sovereignty and the rights of tribes to partake in the lands that were obviously theirs, and arguably still are, according to the Supreme Court, how do you do that in a way or the best way possible and move forward with all of America too? So yeah, those are, those, are, I guess, are the Things I'm working on, and that's a vague way to say it, but if I was to say on different meetings with nonprofits and different stakeholders to try to get wood for the community so when we experience the blizzards that just happened and people died, we don't have that happen because there'll be a backup wood supply, which means establishing a relationship like a sustainable one where people have at least a couple months of wood reserves for people who rely on wood to heat themselves and cook. So those are some of the tangible projects that are on my plate right now. Yeah,
1: it's important stuff. We're, we're right at the end of our time. And I, I have so many more questions, especially about the early stuff, which we didn't really get to dive into. But <laughs> uh, I guess just on a, a last note to wrap up on if you had, like, one soapbox thing, like, one thing, that if you could scream it from the rooftops and, you know, have everybody hear you, <laughs> what would it be?
2: <laughs> Sadly, and I'm just going to say it because I took a sip of my diet Pepsi here and I was thinking of an Eddie Murphy movie and the barbershop scene. Don't bet on the white guy. when <laughs> It's a boxing <laughs> match, but when you're saying – if you could say something and scream off the roof, it would you don't trust a white man, no, uh, <laughs> it's it's an interesting, I mean, thing. What would my screaming off the roof? I'd be thinking, I wonder how long till someone shoots me <laughs> if I was screaming <laughs> on my roof, or if people would ignore me in town. So I just had a few few rapid thoughts go through my head when you were saying that I statement. Love it. I would think, you know, that that the space is. Of what someone can do with anthropology degrees are endless. Whether someone goes more specific into archaeology or linguistics or whatever that specialization might be, you'll find more narrow job paths. But ultimately, learning, going to college, and then, you know, beginning quote unquote a career by doing different jobs you can kind of come about something. I know my wife teaches a careers class at the local school and that whole debate of what's a job and what's a career. And, you know, when they say do what you love or love what you do or all those different kinds of idioms, it seems to me that in the heritage field and in the anthropological world, there are opportunities, whether in the private sector or, the federal government or towns or whatever space you're going to end up in, that there's plenty of work to do to try to connect people. And having those connections, it's a a positive thing. If people are driven by financial interests and income, maybe not. but (laughs) But as far as ethically feeling decent about the work you do, you know, for sure chase and pursue the passions towards something that often people say, that's not an area to major in. What are you going to get for your jobs and life with that? There's plenty, mm-hmm. plenty of things to do with it. So, yeah, I don't know if I'd scream it, but I just wish a lot of younger people understood things like that. Yeah, Become a lawyer or a doctor so you can pull in big bucks. <laughs>
1: So, Unless you wanna know. feel what how did you word that? Ethic <laughs> uh, you said like ethically, uh, <laughs> ethically what was cleansed. it? Cleansed. Ethically
2: <laughs> Oh geez, I'm not even sure. <laughs>
1: feel ethically I okay. I don't know that I feel ethically. As good as I um, <laughs> <laughs>
2: think ethically,
1: ethically all right.
2: <laughs> yeah, ethically okay. That's about as good as it's gonna be.
1: Oh God. Oh uh, <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I think I think we are done here today. but thank you so much for coming on again. I really really appreciate you taking the time twice now. Yeah, someday we'll have to have you back on and talk more about all of the earlier stuff and what you're doing at that point and yeah, <laughs> it'd be great. So yeah, long story short, thank you again for coming on. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash voices Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.